back and forth through various passages today. We'll put the page number up on the screen for you so you can follow along with us if you're not that uh, Bible savvy. But I was reminded of this video. It's uh, about the world's toughest job. Anybody see this video? That was out, World's Toughest Job. Pretty cool video. Uh, what it was is that these applicants found this uh, job posting online. And they went to this office, and there they were to, to go to this computer, and they were being interviewed for this, this job um, from someone via video. And they asked them a series of questions. Now, the interviewer is speaking to these different applicants, and he says that the first part of this job requirement that these applicants were informed of was mobility. And they were told that this job requires that you be standing most, if not all, of the time. And the interviewer said, you will be constantly on your feet, constantly bending over, constantly exerting yourself, and it requires a high level of stamina. And then he goes on to say, he goes, uh, they asked him, when, how many hours would that be? He said it would be for 135 hours or unlimited hours a week, probably 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Asked if there would be a break. Some of these people are hearing this interview, and they're like, would there, well, will there be a break? The interviewer responded, there are no breaks available. And this one woman asked, is that even legal to do for a job? And he responded, it was. Now, another applicant, upon hearing that, asked if there would be lunch. And the interviewer responded, he said, yes, there is lunch, but only when the associate that you'll be working with is done eating. And they responded, the interviewer then informs the applicant, this position requires someone with skills in negotiation and interpersonal skills. We're really looking for someone with a degree in medicine, finance, and the culinary arts. Uh, you'll need to wear many hats to do this job. And some people were just completely incredulous. Uh, they said, well, what does that mean? Um, how long do I have to work? What does this associate require? They said, well, the associate requires constant attention complete, constant attention, and, a, and sometimes you'll have to stay up with the associate throughout the night. And then being able to work in a chaotic environment was another must-have for the individual. They said, if you have a life, we're going to ask you to give that life up. This is how hard this job is going to be. And um, we're, asking that, we're asking you to give up all your vacation because there's no vacation. In fact, Thanksgiving, Christmas, and holidays, the workload is going to go up, and you have to do it with a happy disposition. That's what this job is going to require. Now, one female applicant said that this job was cruel and a sick, twisted joke. Another male applicant asked when there would be time to sleep, and the interviewer responded with, there's no time to sleep. Another applicant responded with, it's all-encompassing almost, and the interviewer responded with, yes, that's exactly right. It's a 365-day-a-year job. And one, one woman said, that's inhumane. This job is awful. It's completely terrible. And then he goes, well, do you want to hear the salary? They said, yeah. And he goes, it pays you absolutely nothing. Absolutely nothing. And these people were, you should see the looks on their faces. It's hilarious watching their faces. And, and he says, you know that there's someone doing this position right now? And he, people were like, what, really? He goes, billions of people, in fact. It's the job of being a mom. It's the job of being a mom. Um, being a mom is, is tough work. And it is serious, serious business. Indeed, it's been said, the hand that rocks the cradle rules the world. It's very, very true. Parenting is an extremely serious business that God has placed within us. And I, and I think of serious business, and I think of not just parenting, but the gospel. It's even infinitely more serious than that. And we know that we can mess up our kids royally, right? And put them into to some type of therapy or counseling, and, and maybe we didn't even do anything. I mean, like I said, I've seen some great parents have some pretty rebellious kids. And as I've said before, God is the only perfect parent. 
God is the only perfect parent, and we still rebel. But as I think about parenting and I think about trying to get parenting right, I know my wife and I, we've read articles and books and trying to be like, how do we raise, how do we deal with this situation? And we want to make sure that we're doing it the best to our business, the best to our knowledge, that we're, we're doing it, we're doing it in the fear and admonition of the Lord, we're praying, we're asking for God's mercy upon us, because parenting is serious business. And I think there's, there's many other things that um, are very, very serious that we do in our life. Some things not so serious that if we mess it up, no big deal. But there's other things that are pretty serious. I remember speaking with a friend of mine, uh, his name is Jeff. Jeff is a, uh, was in college at the time, and he was studying to be a civil engineer. You know, the guys that build roads and bridges and dams. And he, he was telling me about what his professor had said to him. His professor said, you know, an electronic or electrical engineer messes up, a cell phone goes out. If you mess up as a civil engineer, people die. It's so serious. You mess up a bridge, you mess up a dam, people are going to die. Bridges are going to collapse, and you're going to have to deal with that. It's serious, serious business. So you want to make sure you get it right. I mean, parenting, we want to make sure we get it right. But you know, more than those things... We want to make sure that we get the gospel right. We've got to get the gospel right. It is the ultimate serious business. And these past several, uh, several months, we have been walking through this passage in Matthew chapter 5 through 7, and we're talking about this, what is known as com- commonly known as the Sermon on the Mount. This is when Jesus is giving, in essence, his inaugural address and laying out how it will be in, in his kingdom and how we, who are citizens of that kingdom, how we are to live and conduct our lives. And he lays that out for us. And we've learned about many things. We've learned about how to live, how to love, how to serve. And we we can see most of all that God wants the heart. Now, as we are trying to live this life that God has for us, we, we can see that wherever God is working, God is helping us to do this. We need his spirit to show us how to live this life, to direct us because we have a tendency to fail and fall. That wherever God is working, you can be sure that Satan, the devil is not far behind. And one thing that he likes to do is masquerade as an angel of light. He was once an angel, kicked out of heaven. So he knows the words, he knows the verbiage, he knows what to say and how to say it. He knows how to make something look true. And he knows how to just inject it with a a lie, a small lie. But when you take a small lie and put it with truth, you get a bigger lie. That's where you get things like Mormonism where you get things that people that talk about the Bible, but yet they don't follow the Word of God and what God has for them. So we need to make sure then that we need to get the gospel right because Satan, again, likes to to get us off track just a little bit, just one degree, and that can mean everything. Eternity can hang in the balance for people. So we need to make sure that we get the gospel right. Now, Jesus is laying out for us in this passage. We're going to focus on verses 21 through 23 today. Um, that we need to, in essence, look in the mirror to see if we have it right in our own lives and to show us that you can be in church and not be a true Christian, that you can, go to, you can do whatever. You can be baptized, you can give to the church, you can homeschool your kids, you can watch this video, you can listen to this teacher, you can go to this school, you can do all of these things, but you can still not be a true believer in Jesus. This is one of the most difficult passages in all of scripture not because of any hidden meaning or anything deeper in it because it means what it says it means i like what mark twain once said it's not the things in the bible that i don't understand that bother me it's the things i do understand and this one is pretty clear 
that he's saying that many will say to me on that day, many people will come to me and say, Lord, Lord. It's talking about the final judgment. And they'll say, didn't we do this? And he's going to say, I never knew you. Now, he has given us this passage, in essence, to put a mirror before our eyes, that we might look at ourselves to make sure that this doesn't happen to us. It's kind of like the Christmas, the Christmas carol with, with uh, Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol, when he brings the, the ghosts before him to show what his life will be like if he doesn't make some changes now. Then we need to make these changes, and we need to look at ourselves to test ourselves to see if we truly are followers of Jesus because this is so serious that eternity hangs in the balance. It's something that each of us must do. Honestly, even preparing this, I had to do some serious look in my own life to see, to make sure, to check myself. So that's what we're going to do today. We're going to go on a journey, and I'm going to hopefully put the Word word of God up to you and myself, and that we look in it, and we're asking God to point out the flaws, to point out the things that are not of the gospel, that are not the true gospel, that we might make the necessary changes, that we might follow Him in purity and integrity and fidelity and industry, with the entirety of our lives, that we might grow in godliness, we might increase in joy, that his name might receive great glory. So before we go any further, let's pause and ask for God's blessing on our message time. Father, we come before you asking you to peel away the layers of unbelief. Show us the reality of our condition before you. Awaken us out of our spiritual slumber. Help us to see who you are high and lifted up and help us to see ourselves in light of the truth of your word that we might go forth transformed and changed. Lord, let your, your word act as a scalpel to our soul, removing the, count, the cancer of unbelief that we might go forth transformed for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Now we're going to be walking through this passage rather quickly today, so I would encourage you to stay with me. If I have a passage that I'll ask you to turn to, I'll put the number up on the screen. So the first thing, though, that I want us to see is why God even has this passage for us, because he wants us to understand and make sure that we are guarding against self-deception. That's the first point I want you to write down. Jesus says, not all, not all of those who say to me, not everyone, excuse me, in verse 21, who says to me, Lord, Lord, kurie, kurie, is what it is in Greek. It's, it's this understanding that it's, uh, it's an emphasis. It's recognizing that he is God. It's referring to the time of the last day. Normally, this would just be, could be used as an informal address, but here it's, it's even weightier than that. It's brought, brought out even further because it's at the last day when everyone will see and recognize who he is. And the thoughts and intentions of our hearts will be laid bare before him. And we can't hide. We can't make any excuses. There's no one else to appeal to that were before God. And we say to him, Lord, Lord, did we not? Will, uh, he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, this day of judgment, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not? prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name. So he's saying that all these things, he had all of these outward signs that looked good. And we talked last week about spiritual fruit. And this is where we have to really dig deep to see what he's saying to us, because he wants us to understand a few different things. And, And this is the first thing. It's not about our words. You can say what you want to say. You can say what you want to say. You, we have a tendency in the, as, as Christians to have a certain verbiage. Right, Jack? We do. Uh, Jack and I have talked about this several different times where we know if someone's in the club. 
you know, we say this, we say that, we, we say this teacher and that teacher. You can say all that. That doesn't mean anything. It's not about our words. And that's what Jesus is saying. Not every, you can say, Lord, Lord, and not mean it in the depth of your heart. It's not some magic formula. It's not just this name that you can recite and it has an incantation. It's not that. I've seen people say that. They're like, well, I, 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 I believe in Jesus. Well, look, your life doesn't show anything about it. Just don't say it, do it. It's not about your words. Secondly, it's not about your works. It's not about your works. Think what Jesus says. They, did, they had done mighty works. Didn't we not prophesy in your name? Wow, prophesying. So you're saying, Travis, that a person can prophesy and not be a Christian? Yeah, you better believe it. You can see that in Numbers chapter 22. I don't know if you know the story of Balaam and Balak. Balaam is this pagan prophet who is paid by this guy named Balak to curse the nation of Israel, which is going right across his border, headed into the promised land. Balak's like, good deal. Man, I can just tell, hey, bad people, pay me money. You know? And that's what he's getting ready to do. But God intervenes and ends up speaking through this man. And rather than cursing him, he blesses him. All the, a few different times, God speaks, he intercedes this pagan prophet in the midst of him and speaks words of blessing through him. And now we learn in the scripture, especially in the New Testament, this guy wasn't redeemed. This guy wasn't a true follower of God. He could prophesy great things and say great things and yet still have an unregenerate heart. So it's not about our words. It's not about our works, nor is it about uh, our wonders. Wonders. Now look look back at our text. Did we not prophesy in your name, verse 22, and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? These guys are casting out demons, casting out demons. This is a wonder. I mean, it's, they, they take these people, they speak to them in the name of Christ, and the demon leaves, and yet this person can still not be saved. Now, we can see this example in the book of Exodus. When God is putting the plagues upon the Egyptians. And the scripture says in Ezekiel 7 and Ezekiel 8 that these magicians did the same things by their secret or magic arts, that they mimicked the very plagues of Egypt up till the third plague, which was gnats. But they could do something. They had the ability to do some wonders. As a matter of fact, we understand that the the Antichrist, when he comes, will be able to do wonders and miracles. So just because you see a miracle doesn't mean that it's of God doesn't mean it's of God. That's why he's saying, matter of fact, when the the disciples come back to Jesus and they say, hey, we cast out demons in your name. Jesus says, not a big deal. Don't rejoice in the fact that demons are subjected to you, but rejoice that your names are written down in the book of life. That's the more important thing, that you know me. You know me. So it's not about our words, our works, our wonders, but it's about doing the will of God. Now, what is the will of God? Anything that he delights to have happen. But according to this text specifically, it's all that he is referred to in the Sermon on the Mount. That's the will of God, how we are to live and conduct our lives, to live our life on a daily basis. It's not just about experiencing the supernatural, having this deliverance, but it's daily dying by taking up our cross, by giving God our heart. It's not about the outward conformity of the law, but it's the inner transformation and disposition of the heart that is subjected and submitted to the lordship of Christ. 
doing God's will. And we, we get a greater picture of this in Matthew chapter 25 when Jesus talks about the sheep and the goats. I don't know if you remember that passage or not. Great passage. But he talks about being at the final judgment and having the sheep on one side and the goats on the other. He's separating them because they're all together. And he separates them. And the goats are those who, who didn't visit the sick or take care of the widow or the orphan or, or give food to the hungry or drink to the thirsty or, or visit those in prison. But those who are of the sheep do. Now, these works don't save us. Let me, let me say that, make that abundantly clear. These don't save us. The only thing that saves us is our faith in Christ. That's it, nothing else. But our faith is seen by the works that we do. It's seen, expressed. It's the fruit of our faith, if you will. It's about doing and working out God's will. So we have to look in the mirror and ask ourselves several questions. What does God want from us? How are we doing in his will? Now I'd like to go back to verse 22. He says, on that day, many, many will say to me. So again, he's giving us this Dickinson or Dickens view of looking into the future and saying, I don't want that to be my life. And he's saying this, that we might avoid the mistakes ahead. In other words, he wants us to be avoiding damnation. He wants us to be avoiding damnation. God does not delight in the death of the wicked. He doesn't enjoy that. He doesn't enjoy that at all. We see that in the book of Ezekiel, that God doesn't delight in that. He would rather have them repent and live, to turn to him and live. It's avoiding the coming damnation that is sure to come. And that's why we who are believers in Christ need to be pleading, acting as ambassadors, pleading for people to be reconciled to God and weeping over them, not doing a happy dance that they're going to hell. We need to be weeping and hurting in our hearts. And that should cause us to pray, to get on our knees, to take a greater risk to tell them about who Jesus is. We need to be avoiding this coming damnation and help other people avoid this damnation. We need to make sure of that. Now, he's speaking about this great white throne of judgment when every single person will be judged according to what they did with Christ. Now, you see this damnation occurs when there is no relationship. Relationship. Notice verse 23. And then I will declare to them. This is a a declaration, like a legal judgment. I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. This declare, it's a future indicative active. Future indicative, excuse me, active. It means to make a statement. In the legal sense, to bear witness. It's an act of proclamation in which the relation of man to Jesus is expressed in a binding and valid form. And because of its solemnity, public character and legal sense, it, it connotes or denotes irreversibility. I will declare, I never knew you. I don't have a relationship with you. See, we all have to come to saving faith in Christ on our own. God doesn't have grandchildren. He only has children. That you can't live off the faith of your grandparent or parent or coworker or spouse or child or nephew or cousin or or classmate, whatever it might be. You have to place your faith in Christ yourself and have that relationship with him. It's like the story about this guy. He tried to get in a club, but he couldn't get in. 
couldn't get in the club no matter how hard he tried. The bouncer stopped him. And one day he decides, I'm going to try to go back again. And, and as he's driving there, he sees this car pulled off on the side of the road. just had a blowout. So he pulls off to the side of the road and, and helps this guy out. And, and he, the guy asks him where he's going. And he said, well, I'm going to this club and I can't get in. And the guy goes, that's my club. He goes, come with me. So they go and they park their cars and he, he walks with this guy and he, he comes up to the bouncers and the bouncers are getting ready to deny him and the owner walks through and the owner looks at the guys and goes, he's with me. He's with me. The guy goes, I'm with him. And he goes right in. See, that's how it is with Jesus. How do we get into heaven? I'm with him. I'm with him. That's who I'm with. I'm with that guy. <laughs> we have to have that, that relationship with him. But damnation occurs when there's no relationship. It occurs when there's religion. You can have religion and no relationship. You can be pious. You can get on your knees. You can pray. You can count your prayers. You can, you can go to the a priest all you want. You can give all your money away. You can do all of these great things and still be damned. Still be damned. I mean, Martin Luther... He was a man who had a lot of religion, but not any relationship. He was so pious that he would crawl on his knees as an act of penance for a great deal of time, trying to, to, try to earn God's forgiveness. And it wasn't until he realized that we were justified by faith alone that it freed him from that. It's not about a religion. It's about a relationship, a relationship with Almighty God. He becomes our father, and we become his children. So damnation occurs when there is no relationship. Now, damnation occurs when there is no relationship and where there is rebellion, rebellion. Notice what Jesus says about them, that they are workers, doers, literally, of lawlessness, of living without the law of God, of doing what the Word of God says. They are workers of lawlessness. They are those who actively do what is contrary to God's law, and those who live in an active state of sin. In other words, they can do the outward part, but their heart is in rebellion. God is always about the heart. He's always about the heart. He wants your heart, not your outward conformity. That's where I see a lot of people struggling with Christianity is because they think that you're going to make me do this. You're going to make me do that. No, God wants your heart. That takes care of the rest of it. It takes care of the rest of it. It's like saying that God wants the, the, I mean, he wants the outward part of the car and he doesn't get the steering wheel. Let me tell you, it's the steering wheel that causes where the car goes. The heart is the steering wheel, and then he takes it and directs it where he wants. You can give the outward part, and that's hard to move. You get the steering wheel, it's real easy. It's real easy. Now, some people think, though, that they can be in Christ and live a life of rebellion. In other words, they can nurture it in secret. God knows the secret intentions of our heart. God always wants the heart. But he he says to us, and I I want to show this to you, this is in... 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 19. So turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 2, page uh, 219. That's, if you have the, the Pew Bible, that's page 996. 996. And this is what the Holy Spirit says to Paul, who is speaking to young Timothy, who is pastoring a church, and he wants him to know something very, very clearly. He had just finished talking about false teachers, and he says this, But God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows who are his. He knows who's, who's are his. 
And let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Now, I like this, this verse here because it has two different sides to it. The first is God's perspective on things, and then it's our perspective on things. God's perspective is he knows those who are his. Our perspective is, am I departing from iniquity? That helps me know that I am his, that I have the Spirit of God working in me. Not to, again, not to earn my salvation, but it's a, a byproduct of the saving relationship that I have with God, that now I want to do what pleases Him. If you find yourself living in an active state of sin, I question if you are His. Now, we're all going to sin. We're all going to struggle, every one of us in this room. The question that I have is, are we living in a state of sin? There's a difference between struggling and living in a state of. Big difference. Struggling means I'm going, to, I'm going to fall, but I'm going to, I'm going to confess my sin. I'm going to get back up, and I'm going to keep progressing forward. I'm going to fall, but I'm going to keep progressing. Progressing. Living in a state is just staying in it right then and there, saying I'm okay with my sin. Then if you say that you're okay with your sin and you're willing to stay in a state of sin, then you're saying that the cross of Christ means nothing. Because the cross of Jesus Christ is God's attitude towards sin. That he came to take away and put away sin in our lives, that we shouldn't stay in that state of sin. Now, we're going to struggle. Sanctification is a lifelong process where we we become more and more, hopefully, like Jesus as we progress. But we can't live in that state of sin. Let he who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Depart from iniquity. So, let's look back at verse 23. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Depart. Leave. Now, we can see if we if we don't have Christ, we don't have that relationship with God, it leads to our rejection. It leads to our rejection, that we will be rejected. I've shared this story before, but I watched this special one time on Netflix about these Montana sheep farmers. Don't ask me why I was watching this, but it looked really cool. Okay? And I'm watching this thing on sheep farmers, and one of them... um, was so astonishing to me was when they were they were going through the birth practices and this little baby lamb was born and the mother died and so they had this baby lamb and they the baby's going to starve unless they can feed it well this other ewe had given birth and her baby had died so logically you take the the motherless lamb and then the the ewe with the out a child and you put them together but the thing was is that she won't take this baby because she won't smell the scent of her lamb. So she'll reject this child, this little lamb. So what they did was, is they skinned the other lamb, that her lamb that had died. And they took the skin and they put it on the baby lamb. And then when the baby lamb went to that mama, she received him because she smelled her child. That is a picture of God receiving us, that we have to put on the righteousness of Christ, not our own, because we have none of our own. That Jesus died to give us his righteousness that we would be received by the Father. Then God smells His Son in us. But see, if He doesn't smell the Son, He rejects us. So we can't come in our own righteousness, but only in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Make sure that we are not rejected. Now, my goal here today is to make you question your salvation. Most preachers wouldn't do that, but I'm going to do that today. I want you to look in the mirror and ask yourself, am I truly a believer in Christ? My other goal is to shake you out of your spiritual lethargy and realize the awesome and terrible power of God as shown forth in the gospel. And I want you to 
to be, I want you to be absolutely sure that when you leave here that you know your eternal destination. That's the next point I want you to write down. We might be knowing, and that's what Jesus wants us to do. Look in the mirror and then make the changes necessary so that we might be knowing our eternal destination. You know, we see this, this picture. God wants us to do this, to test ourselves in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5. I'm not going to have you turn there, but the scripture says, Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless you indeed fail the test? How do you know that you are a believer or follower of Jesus Christ? What is it? What is it that you see, that you know, that's in your life that shows that you are a true child of God? Is it your outward behavior? Or is it this inner conviction that comes from the Holy Spirit of God? I hope that's what it is. We see, and I and to ask you to turn with me to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, verse 16 through 17. That's on page 944. If you have that, the Romans is in the New Testament, in the latter part of it. Holy Spirit is writing... Uh, or Holy Spirit is, is uh, inspiring Paul to write to the church of Rome. And in Romans 8, verse 16 through 17, uh, the Spirit himself, Paul writes, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. It is, means that we have the Spirit of God that is within us that shows and tells us beyond a shadow of a doubt that we are God's children. That works itself out in many different ways, but it's this concrete surety that I'm saved, that I know Jesus, that I am born again, that we have been transformed by the grace of Almighty God. Now, I want us to be sure and understand this about our destination that we, we know our destination comes. This is how our, we can be sure of our destination is heaven. It comes by God regenerating by His Spirit. It comes by God regenerating by His Spirit. I want you to turn with me to page 998 or Titus 3. I have First Titus on there. It's supposed to just be Titus, excuse me. Titus 3, 4 through 7. Holy Spirit, again, writing uh, through Paul to Titus, who's also in ministry. And he says, Titus 3, 4, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing and regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured on us richly in uh, through Christ Jesus, our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Now, what is regeneration? See, the word regeneration is found only twice in Scripture. In Matthew chapter 19, verse 28, and Titus 3, 5, the passage we just read, the word literally means a new birth. Now, the Greek word so rendered is used by classical writers with reference to the changes by the return of spring, that it's new, the new creation. All of these things begin to bloom in our lives. Now, the word is equivalent to the restitution of all things. It denotes the change of heart elsewhere spoken of as passing from death to life or becoming a new creature in Christ Jesus, being born again, a renewal of the mind, a resurrection from the dead, and being quickened. It's ch- the change is ascribed to the Holy Spirit of God. It originates not with man, but with God. As the nature of the change consists in the implanting of a new principle or disposition in the soul. 
we are transformed. It's the impartation of spiritual life to those who are by nature dead in trespasses and sins. The necessity of such a change is emphatically infirmed in Scripture. In other words, it's the spiritual change wrought in the heart of man by the Holy Spirit in which his or her inherently sinful nature is changed so that she can respond to God in faith and live in accordance with his will. Extends to the whole nature of a person, altering their governing position, illuminating their mind, freeing the will, and renewing their nature. That's what Jesus says, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. That's what the Spirit of God is doing, drawing us unto himself, regenerating by his Spirit. That's the God perspective. God does that. We don't necessarily see that. We just know something's different. There's a change that's going on within us. I was speaking with Tim Badal, a teaching pastor at our Sugar Grove campus, and he had these two people that were coming to church, and they kept coming back, coming back. They said, we never grew up in church. We don't have, how, have any idea how this thing goes, but something's different in our lives. There's a change. We don't know what it is, but we want to read the Bible. Never wanted to read the Bible before. We wanted to start doing stuff that God wants us to do. Can you tell us what's wrong? Tim goes, I think you've got saved. I think that you have been born again, that God has transformed your life. He's regenerating by His Spirit. That's what God does. Now, this is what we do. This is what it looks like on the ground, in essence. That's what it looks like from the air. This is what it looks like on the ground. It involves us repenting of our sins. Repenting, about face, turning away from, reordering our life to do what God wants us to do, removing, turning away from our sinful uh, desires to God, repenting, turning away confessing. It means agreeing with God and then turning away from them, repenting of our sins. Now, this is a doctrine that is getting a lot of fire recently. And I was listening to uh, a group of pastors and scholars uh, that were at this conference called Together for the Gospel. And they were talking about um, attacks on the horizon to Christianity. And one of them says, they said, the doctrine of repentance that many churches are turning away and they're saying that you can live in the midst of your sins and God's okay with that. Let me tell you right now, God is not okay with that. He is not okay for all of us, myself included. I'm indicted just like everyone else is. I'm not a perfect guy. I had to turn from my sins. We all have to turn from our sins to Christ. Now, again, that doesn't mean we're going to be perfect. And it doesn't mean we have to clean up everything before we come to Jesus. It means that we see that there's the shower, we're in mud and we step in knowing that he's going to cleanse us. He's going to transform us. Don't try to to clean yourself off before you step in the shower. That's what a lot of people do. They say, well, I'm not clean enough to go to church yet. Well, it's like saying that I'm not going to get in the shower because I'm too dirty. What? Doesn't make any sense. Doesn't make any sense. But it means, means us turning, repenting of our sins. It also means confessing with our mouth. Confessing with our mouth. This does not mean that a spoken spoken affirmation of one's faith is a work that merits salvation. But it's such a confession that gives outward evidence of inward faith and often confirms that faith to the speaker himself. We read this in Romans chapter 10, verse 9 through 10. Um, You can turn with me there if you wish, but I'm just going to read it for the sake of time. Paul, by the Spirit, writes, Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved for it is with the heart one believes, the center of one's being, and is justified, declared righteous with God. And with the mouth one confesses and is saved. So we have repenting of our sins. We have 
confessing with our mouth, and we also need to believe with our heart. Believe with the depth of our being that God is God. And not just that God is God. Because in America, we have a moral therapeutic deity that we throw out every holiday. This is the God of God bless America. There's this therapeutic God that is for everybody going to heaven and no one's going to hell and heaven's for real. And that's the moral therapeutic God that we place for in front of us. And that's not the God of the gospel. That is not the God of the gospel. Because not everyone is going to heaven according to the word of God. Not everyone is doing right and their life is okay. That is not the God of the gospel. Not this moral therapeutic deity. Now, we don't just believe in theism, but we have to believe that Christ is the Son of God. C.S. Lewis, the great author of a bygone generation, um, he had two conversions that he pointed to in his life. The first one, when he was converted to theism. And he calls himself the most reluctant convert in all of England. He was a Brit. He said he was so dejected when he came to know Jesus because he realized that God was God, but it meant that his life was going to be different. But it wasn't until two years late, two years later after that, when he is going to the zoo and his brother's on a motorcycle and he's in the little sidecar. And he said, at the beginning of the trip, I didn't believe that Jesus was the Christ, but by the time we got there, I believed that Jesus was the Christ. I'm like, worst conversion story ever. How are you converted? In a sidecar on the way to the zoo. That's exactly what it was for him, though. He was transformed that God, he realized the truth of who Jesus is. And his life was transformed and he believed it in the depth of his heart. So believing in our heart and then next receiving him as Savior. Receiving him as Savior. We see this in John chapter 1. John chapter 1, verse 12 through 13. That's page 886. 886, if you have your pew Bible. The Holy Spirit through John says, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. See, that's how you have that relationship. You must receive him. Every single one of us in this room, you can't get to heaven without receiving him as Lord and Savior of our lives. And then after we have received him as Lord and Savior, identified with him in baptism, and make sure then that we are ordering and living our life by the scriptures. Ordering and living our life by the scriptures. Tony Evans tells a story about a man who was in prison and in need of some money. He wrote his mother and asked her to send $500 immediately. Soon after, he got a package in the mail. It was a Bible. On the top of the Bible, there was a a letter that said, Son, I love you. Pray and read your Bible. The man was immediately ticked. He was angry. He called his mother and said, Mama, I appreciate the Bible, but what I need right now is $500. She told him over the phone, phone, Son, pray and read your Bible. He got even angrier and hung up on his mother. He then wrote a letter, Mother, I know you believe in God, but that's the problem with you Christians. You're so heavenly minded that you don't know how to function in the real world. When I need $500, I don't need a Bible. I need a check or five greenbacks. If I need money, don't send me a Bible and tell me to pray. He got a letter back that said, Son, pray and read your Bible. He was so irritated at his mother that for the next six months he was in jail, that Bible stayed in the corner. After a long while, he finally got out. His mother was there to meet him. And she said, 
uh, he said to her, he was so angry he could hardly speak. He said, Mama, you let me down. I needed you as my mother and you let me down. She said, what do you mean, son? I wrote you, I called you, I begged you for $500, and every time you gave me the same old line to pray and read my Bible. She opened up the Bible at every divisional section within the text, and there was a $100 bill taped inside of it. If the boy had just read his Bible, he would have understood that the thing he was looking for most was in the text. Because he didn't take seriously the Word of God, what the Word of God has to offer, he never received. See, God's Word offers more than just temporal needs. It offers spiritual, eternal needs. And we must follow it because it contains the truth of who God is. It is the truth of who God is and who we are. Without it, we have nothing. In it, we learn about who Jesus is and what he desires of us, what he requires of us. Because in the Bible, we see that God is love, but we also see that God is wrath. And we also see that God gave his son to take the wrath of God upon us. And we have to understand what Richard Sibbs, the great Puritan, once said, that without Christ or outside of Christ, God is terrible. God is terrible. Outside of Christ, God is completely terrible, that he's a God of wrath, a God of judgment. He is a God of love, but that is seen in his son. Without his son, we don't have that love of God. But inside of Christ, he is amazingly wonderful and a spectacle to behold. And we get a picture of this in a story, and then I want to conclude with this. Evans, again, tells a story about a man who was out with his wife, and they got caught in a terrible hailstorm. Tornado season, storms, hail. There was a massive hailstorm. The hail was as large as baseballs. Massive. Under the deluge coming against them, the man realized that if he didn't do something, his wife would be severely hurt. He quickly draped himself over his wife, covering her with his own body, so that instead of the storm hitting his wife, it hit him. The hailstones seemed to get bigger as the man bent over his wife, protecting her. The large balls came down harder onto the man. They hurt him badly. After a couple of minutes, his ears started bleeding along with some spots on his head. The man tried to lead his wife to safety, but the stones were coming out faster and harder. The pounding stones took their toll. Weakened by the onslaught, the man finally collapsed over his wife, only able to shield her from the danger. After the storm was over, the man was left with scars from where the balls had battered away at him. The remnants of sores, cuts, and abrasions would forever be reminders to him of the day he had saved his wife. Now, it's a true story. On the local newscast, the man's wife was asked how she felt about the experience, and she said, every time I look at that scar on his head, on his neck, and on his ear, I love him more. Every time I see the scar, I love him more because he sacrificed himself for me. See, when you and I get to heaven, Jesus will be the only person in eternity with scars. He will have holes in his hands, holes in his feet, and a hole in his side. He will be your eternal reminder that the only reason you are there is because he stood between, in between the wrath of God and the judgment headed your way. He covered you with his love and allowed none of that hail to damage you. He was disfigured for you. This is the love of Christ. See, we have to get the gospel right. It's serious business. We need to extend that to all of those that we love, that they might, too, know and confess Christ and receive him as Lord and Savior. Don't deceive yourself. Are you in Christ? Have you repented of your sins, believed, received him as Lord and Savior? Then you have passed from death to life, and your life is transformed as God puts his spirit within you then you need to follow him, give yourself to him. If you're holding on to your rebellion, God is not mocked. 
What a man sows, he will also reap. I would beg you to turn from your sin and embrace him as Lord and Savior. You might receive the gift that he has for you, receive that great love and recognize that he has given himself that you might be saved and transformed for his glory and your joy. Let's pray to close our message time. Our Father, we come before you now and we we realize that the gospel is the most serious business there is. Parenting is serious, but the God, gospel is infinitely more serious. Lord, help us to get it right. Help us to, to check and test ourselves to see who we are in the faith. Help us to avoid false teachers and not believe lies. But help us to come back to you, to realize that you alone, you alone have accomplished our salvation. Help, our, help us to live our lives in light of that not as just simple moralism, but realizing that we have placed our faith in you and that you've given us the gift of salvation through your Son. Just as it says within your word, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, so not by works, so that no one would boast. Lord, may we not boast in anything but, it, but what our Savior has done in our behalf. May we live our lives accordingly. And Lord, for those that are continuing on in their rebellion, that have a hate for you, pray that they might see the depth of your love that was poured forth on Calvary. They might receive you and love you with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. Lord, please use us, transform us, and glorify your name in our lives and in our church. In Jesus' name we pray.